Our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you, Paul. Well, let's get caught up a little bit in the series that we're in, A Generous Table. This is week four of five. We're going to wrap it up next week. And then after that, if you're curious where we're going, we're going to start a study of the book of Colossians. Um, one of my personal favorite books in the whole Bible. It's been called the most Christ-centered of the books, uh, potentially of the whole Bible, at least of the epistles or the letters of Paul. And we're going to just go verse by verse, as is our pattern here. It'll probably take us to Easter to get through it. We'll do an Advent series when we get around the Christmas time. But I can't tell you how excited we are about that. And I can't tell you excited, how excited I've been in this series. Um, I've learned things about food and table and eating in this series that I never thought about before in connection to God's Word. And so if you've missed it, let me give you just a little bit of a recap, or even if you haven't missed it, this will be a good recap for all of us. In week one, Lloyd was here, our other teaching pastor, and he started us off with a question from the center of the Bible. It's in uh, Psalm 78. And the question is this, can God spread a table in the wilderness? The context of that question was, this is a question that the Hebrew people asked when they were in the wilderness, literally, and they're trying to figure out where their next meal is going to come from. But if you really think about it, that's the question that all of us carry around throughout life. Every time we hit a new season, every time something hard happens or something goes wrong in life or, or something that we hoped would happen doesn't happen, or we lose someone or something, that's the question we're asking. Can God spread a table for me in the wilderness? And that was week one. And we, we've come to find as we go throughout the series, the answer that the biblical authors have over and over is yes, he has. Yes, he does. Today we're going to talk about, yes, he will. Now, in the second week of our series, we talked about a single meal in the Old Testament that may be the most important Old Testament meal of all. And it was the ceremony that formalized the covenant or the, the promised relationship that God made with his people Israel. They had this very formal ceremony that sounded strange to our ears, kind of like a wedding ceremony. It's essentially what it was. And then they immediately celebrated with food. And there's this fascinating verse right there in Exodus 24. It says, the people saw God and ate and drank. And that meal became the pattern of all the feasts and festivals that the Hebrew people celebrated for all those thousands of years of the Old Testament. The tabernacles, Passover, etc. They would gather, they would eat a sacrificed animal, and they would do it with joy because they were called to eat, quote, in the presence of the Lord. So these meals became a particular way that God's presence was with his people. So what we learned from week two was not only does food represent the provision of God, 
It also represents the, present, the, the presence of God, provision and presence, all represented at the table. So then we get to the New Testament, and last week, Lloyd covered the most important meal in the history of the world so far. That's not an exaggeration. It's the Last Supper. So you've seen that depicted in paintings. We're all somewhat familiar with that story. Lloyd unpacked it last week. Jesus gave a whole new meaning to the table. All those feasts and festivals Israel had been keeping, and in a sense, every meal that you and I eat, Jesus gave a new meaning to it because essentially what he said was, I am the meal. I'm the bread. I'm the drink. It all points to me. So in other words, your provision more than houses, more than cars, more than relationships, more than jobs, more than grandkids. Your provision is Jesus. This is what he's saying. It's me. He says, and the presence of God that you've longed for, being back into a relationship with the creator who made you, that empty place relationally in your soul is fulfilled through faith in Jesus. He's both the provision and the presence. And then Lloyd ended last week by saying that most important meal actually points to even a more important meal in the future that is still yet to come. And it is a meal that is still in our future this morning. And the meal that we've been singing about already, although you may not have known it, and the meal that our scripture passage is centered around. And that's what we're going to dive in this morning, the meal to come. Now, you don't need to turn to Revelation 19 yet because I'm going to do the sermon a little bit differently. I'm going to start with a couple other passages in the New Testament and build up to Revelation 19. But while you're thinking about this meal to come, let me just say a couple of things about Revelation 19 and then we're going to come back to it. It gives us a snapshot of the whole story coming together in completion. So I don't know what kind of movies you like, but I like epic movies, especially if they have some theme of redemption in them. So I can watch, you know, the three Lord of the Rings movies, or I can watch Braveheart, or I can watch, you know, some of these classic epic movies, and there's always a scene at the very end where everything is the way it should be, everything is made right, and the people are celebrating. And oftentimes, by the way, those scenes involve fellowship and food. They often do. Not always, but they do. And I've been known to weep at some of these scenes. You know, Luke blows up the Death Star, and then they're all gathered in that big thing. Or, you know, there's this scene at the end of Les Mis. I love the most recent cinematic adaptation where you see all the poor people that were down and you know, trotted upon. Now they're all up celebrating in this view of, of things to come. And I just weep sometimes. I think what's going on there is those scenes tap into the longing in my own heart, the longing in my own soul to see broken things made right, to see incomplete things made complete. That's the scene in Revelation 19. And isn't it interesting that the image that God gives of the fulfillment of all things is a table. It's a feast. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb, which doesn't sound very inviting. It's like, you know, what's, what's going on with the lamb? We're going to find out. There's so much there for us at this table to come. Now, I want you to think about how tangible the image of food is. Most of us have this idea of heaven that it's going to be like some disembodied state of maybe floating around clouds and just, or we're going to just be gathered like this in a, a worship service just sort of in like this uh, ethereal state of singing all the time. That's not the picture the Bible gives of heaven. The Bible describes it as a new earth, a recreated earth. And, and guess what it says is going to be on that earth? Mountains, rivers, trees. It's going to be populated with animals. It's going to be so much like our current earth, but without all the 
sin, with all the, out all the disease, without all the natural disasters, without all the thorns. That's the picture of the new earth that is to come. And it's fascinating to me that, that the culminating image in the new earth, it all begins, it commences with a feast. Food is so tangible. You can taste it, you can smell it. I want to tell you all, we're going to be eating on the new earth. And everybody said, amen. Those are Baptists over here in this corner. That's good. We are going to taste stuff. We're going to eat stuff. It's going to be better than anything we've eaten here, I believe. We're going to be able to feast. And that's the picture of what life on the new earth will be like eternally. Now, I do believe the actual banquet that's described in Revelation 19 will be a, will be a meal. It's an actual meal. I don't think it's just symbolic. And yet, even though that's an actual event, I think it gives us a picture. It's a representative picture of what all of life will be like in eternity on the new earth. So I don't think we're literally going to be sitting at a table all day, every day, all night, every night. No, we're going to be coming and going from tables just like we do now. But I think that image of the provision of God spread before us and the presence of God with us is the predominant image in scripture of what it will be like for everything to be right, for everything to be culminated in wholeness. You see, God's plan all along has been to spread a table in the wilderness. So I think the work that he wants to do through this morning's message and the, the three different texts here that we're going to look at is to re-energize our understanding and anticipation of that meal to come so that we'll live differently now in light of it. Uh, last thing I'll say by way of introduction, um, I remember growing up hearing this saying, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I don't know if you ever heard that saying. That just ain't our problem. That is not our problem in this day and age. It's not, I don't think the, the primary problem in my own heart, I don't think it's the primary problem in our hearts in this day and age, in this culture. I think in a sense, the opposite is true. We're not heavenly minded enough. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's, here's what I mean. We are so busy and focused and consumed by making sure that our tables right now have all the good stuff on them, literally and figuratively. We're so consumed with making this world, this life, as comfortable and fulfilling as possible, that we're not driven toward what's ahead. It's not in our minds enough to actually shape how we're living now. And I believe this morning, this, the texts that we look at are going to help us a little bit with that because I think the more you understand what's in store for you at the table to come, the more energized you will be and the more free you will be to live now with joy and hope. I really believe that's true. So in order to get us there, I want to start back in Luke 24. You, you can go ahead and turn there if you, if you want. Luke chapter 24. And here's what we're going to do. In order to set up Revelation 19, which we'll get to at the end, which is the feast, the table to come, I would like us to look at two meals Jesus shared with his followers that both took place after his resurrection. Now, why do we go there? In part, because I think if we want to know what it's going to be like to eat and drink with Jesus, which is exactly what we're going to be doing, we might get a couple of clues from what it was like for the followers of Jesus to eat and drink with him post-resurrection. So we're going to look at two post-resurrection, after-resurrection meals that Jesus shared with his followers and asked the question, what can we learn? What glimpse do we have of all that we have to look forward to? There's going to be one major thing in each that I want to explore with you. 
The first is in Luke 24. Now, in a few minutes, we're, we're going to pick it up in verse, uh, let's see, we're going to get to 28. But let me kind of start in verse 13, and I won't read it, but I want to summarize this story. It's resurrection day, the literal day Jesus has rose from the tomb, early in the morning on a Sunday. Some women have gone to the tomb. They found it empty. There was an angel that said he's risen. They rush back to the disciples. Peter and John rush to the tomb. They find it exactly as the women said. But at this point, the disciples had not seen Jesus. And so they're kind of left in this very confused state. They want to believe these women, but they're not sure if they can or not. Until they actually see Jesus, they're actually going to be hiding. They're going to be sad. They're going to be distraught. That's the case with these two followers of Jesus who depart from Jerusalem later on that morning. They're walking to a little town about eight miles away called Emmaus. These were not two of the 12, but these were two of the other followers of Jesus who knew him. You know, there were a lot of men and women that followed Jesus around. These were two of them. He would have known them by name. They would have known them. We don't know both of their names, but we know one of them was named Cleopas. So Cleopas and another friend of Jesus are walking along the road and they're distraught. We know this because the text tells us they're sad. They're not in a good place. They're confused and they're just processing all this together. And suddenly a man comes up to them. They don't recognize him. The narrator tells us it's Jesus, but he has somehow kind of supernaturally blinded their eyes so they can't see. And he comes up and he says, what are y'all talking about? And they stop and look at him. Literally, it says they, they, they don't move and they're sad. And then they say, where have you been? Now, haven't you heard of all this stuff going on? It's as if they're saying, from what rock did you crawl up from under? Which is kind of ironic considering who they're talking to. And then they go on and they say, listen, there's this man, Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah, but he's dead. Now there's rumors he's alive, but we haven't seen him. What's going on? There's his body stolen. This is terrible. It's gone from bad to worse. We don't even have a body that we can anoint. And Jesus turns to them. Of course, they don't recognize him yet. And he says, listen, have you not seen everything that the scriptures teach all this was in the prophecies. Like, this is necessary. And he walks through, and there's this wonderful verse here. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The greatest sermon in history, walking through the Old Testament, all of it pointing to Jesus. Then we get to verse 28, and this is where I want to pick up the story. We'll put it on the screens. You can look at it in your Bible as well. Verse 28. So they drew, drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's talk about what's going on here. Jesus intentionally shielded his true identity from them until the moment that they sat at table together, until the moment that they were eating and drinking together. And then he, he takes bread. You see all the significance of this in light of what happened just a few days earlier at, at the table with his 12 disciples? He takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it. And it's at that moment where they're receiving provision from God that they realize they're in the presence of God. And all of this happens right at the table. Now, I want us to ask, what can we learn about this and apply to what we have to look forward to at the table to come? Because we're going to be with Jesus as well. We're going to be eating 
All of us, all of us who have faith in Christ are going to be eating with him. I want you to think about the emotional and mental state of these men when they first encountered Jesus, not knowing who he was. This is probably for them maybe the lowest point in their lives or one of the lowest. And I, they just lost their friend. They saw him die in a very violent manner. They had hopes that he was going to rescue their nation and give them uh, liberty and freedom from the Roman oppressors. Turns out that wasn't the case in their minds. Now he's gone. They can't see him. There's nothing tangible left. There's just an empty tomb as far as they know at this point in time. They're in a bad place. We know they're sad. Jesus encountered them at that point. And in the moment at the table, Jesus turns everything right side up. In one moment, they go from worst moment of life, best moment of life. You see this? Now, here's an analogy. Imagine that you, you, you know, your deepest longings and hopes and dreams for life are, are just right in front of you in, in, in a gift, but it's wrapped in wrapping paper and you don't know what it is and you're carrying it around all your life and you, just, you haven't been able to open it yet. You hope, you hope it's what you want, but you're not sure and you're sad because you're still left unfulfilled. And then there comes a day where... The giver of the gift says, you may now unwrap the gift. And you pull open. What is it that's been with me all this time? Is it what I hope it is? And you see, it is. It's exactly what you needed. It's exactly what you've longed for. It's even better. You see, that's the moment where, where the blinders come off their eyes, so to speak. And they say, he's been with us all along. He's been right here on the road. Didn't our hearts burn within us? So here's one thing that will be true for us at the table to come. Our eyes will be opened. Our eyes will be opened and we'll see the provision of God in fullness, literally spread out on a table for us and then figuratively spread out on a new earth for us. Then we will realize we are in the presence of God and I believe there'll be a sense that we'll have eyes to see that we've been in the presence of God. We just didn't see him. We couldn't recognize him. He was with us. But we will see him face to face. You see, our eyes will be opened. At the table to come, here's another way to say it, we will finally see. That's the first thing that I want to point out from this passage. At the table to come, we will finally see. I don't think I can overstate how incredible that will be. And to help get you there mentally, I want you to think about what these men were going through. And I want you to think about how when he un unpacked the scriptures to them, it made sense of the most tragic event that they had ever personally witnessed. He was making sense of their pain. He was taking the whole story of the world, the story of their nation, and the story of their friend, Jesus. And he was saying, look, it all makes sense. It all adds up. And they say, didn't our hearts burn within us? Now, that's a little bit of a metaphor. It doesn't mean they were in pain. It means that there was such an emotional thing going on in their hearts that it felt like they're just going to jump, explode out of their skin with joy and understanding and clarity. It, it's as if their whole lives, in a sense, up to that point, they'd only been able to see the jumbled mess of the, the threads on the backside of a tapestry, all ugly and mushed together. And then Jesus, as he unpacks it all, he flips over the tapestry and says, see the work of art on the other side and says their hearts burned within them. Jesus helped them make sense of their pain. 
at the table to come, your eyes will be opened in a way that will change everything. You will see things and know things that will finally make sense of the jumbled mess of the backside of your tapestry. You'll have a new perspective of God. You'll have a new perspective of what he's been up to in your life all these years, a new perspective of the pain and suffering that you've been a part of in your time on this earth. And although you may or may not get every question answered, I believe Jesus will make sense of your pain. And your heart will burn within you. It's going to be this sense of tremendous relief this sense of cathartic joy, this sense of freedom of all the weight you've been carrying around finally unloaded off of you and say, are you kidding me? This is even better than I could dream. Your heart will be set ablaze with joy. That's the first thing we have to look forward to. We will finally see. We'll finally have eyes to see. Now, there's a second meal I want us to look at that's going to teach us something equally as wonderful about what we have to look forward to at the table to come. So I want you to flip over to John chapter 21. So John, the very next book of the Bible, and the very end, the last chapter of that book, the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And, and while you're turning there, let me kind of catch you up to the story, and then we'll read a passage in just a minute. This is now a couple of weeks or so after the resurrection. Jesus had told the disciples when he did finally see them to meet them in Galilee. They've gone back to Galilee, which was their home area, and Peter the fisherman is back fishing. The way they would fish back then is they would go out in the evening, they would stay out all night, and they would try to catch the fish at night. And this particular night, there was nothing. And it just wasted their energy and their time. And, and right as the sun was rising, uh, there's a figure on the beach. They, they can't recognize him just because it's too dark. I don't think there's anything mysterious going on, but they don't know it's Jesus. And the man on the beach calls out, have you caught anything? And there's their shout back, no, it's been you know awful night, etc. And then he says, well, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. Now, at this point, they must have been thinking, man, this is deja vu all over again. Like, I, this is how he, Jesus called us three years before is this way. And so I, I think there was some possible hope that started building in them. Maybe that's Jesus. But until they actually pulled the nets out, they weren't sure. But they pulled the nets out, and they're bursting with fish. What wasn't there just before, now the provision is overflowing, you see. And so John turns to Peter, and John's like, it's Jesus. And then Peter can't help himself. He just jumps in the water, fully clothed. And he's like, you know, I can just imagine running through the surf. This is about 100 yards to the shore. And he gets to the shore. And this is where I want to pick up the story right here in verse 9. John 21, starting in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. By the way, how cool is the specificity of that? You know, this is, these aren't made up stories. There's, there were 153 fish. You know, somebody counted them, recorded them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. In other words, there was no supernatural blinders over their lives. They recognized him. They just saw him. They didn't even need to ask him. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Once again, we have Jesus, post-resurrection, offering a meal to his friends. And whereas they couldn't see him before, this time, because, you know, the sun was still coming up and they were 100 yards away, now they get up close and personal. He's giving them food and they see him. Now, there's a little detail in this meal that makes it come alive with emotion for the central character of this story, which actually is not Jesus. The central character of this whole passage is Peter. And we'll see that in just a minute. There's a little detail that makes this text come alive with emotion for Peter, and it's so small it's easily missed. It's in the description of the fire that Jesus lit to prepare the breakfast. If you look back up at verse 9, it says, they saw a charcoal fire. Now, that's a particular type of fire. In fact, it's one Greek word. It was a rare Greek word. It's an unusual word. It's very intentional that the author, in this case, John, used this word to describe the fire. He's going out of his way to call out a specific detail. You might be interested to know this very specific Greek word is only used one other time in the whole Bible. It's in John 18, verse 18. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. John 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, some of you know this, some of you don't. That sets the scene where Peter denies three times that he even knows Jesus. Because Jesus had just been arrested and Peter is so ashamed and afraid that he will not associate with the man that he had just said earlier that night he'd follow to death. In fact, if you unpack the, the passage where Peter denies Jesus, the third time he denies to him, he denies him with curses. And probably what that is, is he is cursing Jesus in order to show how seriously he denies him. That was the worst moment of Peter's life. And it happened around a charcoal fire. Now in John 21, you have to picture Peter sopping wet, coming up on the shore, so happy to see Jesus right up until the moment that he smells the charcoal fire. One of my professors in seminary put it this way. For Peter, shame had a scent. It was the scent of burning charcoal. Peter gets to Jesus and he smells the charcoal and he sees Jesus huddled around a charcoal fire and their eyes lock. Now, why would Jesus take Peter back to the moment of his deepest shame? Only to redeem it. Only to fully restore Peter, to, to set him free. He's like, Peter, listen, I meant when I said you don't have to fish anymore for fish because I've got a new job for you. And that mistake you made and the shame you feel over it does not have to hold you back from what I've called you to do. 
And we know this is exactly Jesus's intention because if we walk through the rest of the chapter, right after breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside and he gives him a chance three times to say, Lord, I love you. Three times Peter says that. Three times, Lord, I love you. And each time Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my lamb. In other words, take the provision I've given you and be about the work I've called you to and don't let your shame hold you from that. Don't let it keep you from that, you see. Jesus removed his shame. He provided Peter at that breakfast so much more than food. This is the second thing that you and I will get to experience at the table to come. Our shame will be permanently removed. Now, in order to fully understand the power of that, I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 2. The very last sentence of Genesis chapter 2, so the last thing stated right before all hell breaks loose in chapter 3, literally, is this verse, chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that's the very last time human beings walked the earth without the scent of shame in our nostrils. I have it. You have it. For some, it's not very strong, perhaps. For others of you, it's all you know. It burdens your life. Psychologists tell us that maybe more than anything else, shame damages our emotional health and our relationships. It's shame. It motivates our masks. It motivates our lies and deception. It lurks behind our destructive coping mechanisms. We sense our nakedness. We feel our nakedness. We are shamed. Now, for the believer in Jesus, I just want to say you this, tell you this. You do not have to wait all the way to the table to come to make progress with your shame. Can I just say that? I'm not saying that. There is lots of progress to be made. In fact, a lot of what we do in our group work is helping us understand the gospel in a deeper way so we can live more free and joyful lives. But there is a sense, there is a sense that as long as you are on this earth in your current fallen body, you will never fully be able to imagine what it will feel like for your shame to be completely removed. You will never fully be able to know what it feels like to be perfectly comfortable in your own skin. But you see, that day is coming. At the table to come, your shame will be permanently removed. I don't even think it'll be a distant memory. I don't even think it'll be in our consciousness. You will be completely at rest in the fullness of your identity as part of the bride at Christ. So two post-resurrection meals that both give us glimpses of some of the things we have to look forward to at the feast to come, at the table to come. And listen, guys, there's a hundred more. There's thousands more. I, we couldn't even do a whole series that would fully explain all that we have to look forward to at the table to come. These are just two, and we'll put them up on the screen. As we finish this message and as we get back to Revelation 21, I want you to keep these in your mind. At the table to come, we will finally see we will have no more Shame, And I want you to think about the combination of those two things together. And, and I want to take us back. There, there's a, a, 
a Genesis 3 verse that brings these two things together in an incredible way. And I want to read it to you. Genesis 3, verse 7. This is the very next verse after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. The one thing on the table spread in front of them that God says is not for you, they eat it. They disobey God. And this is exactly what happens right after they disobey God, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So isn't this interesting? At that very moment of their sin, their eyes were actually opened. They could see, but what they saw now brought them shame. And so they covered themselves. They they took leaves and they made coverings for themselves. Men and women have been making coverings ever since. I do it, you do it. But now there's been a final covering made by God. This is what the gospel teaches us. It's actually the blood and the body of Jesus that provide the covering of our sin, permanently removing our shame. The problem is, until we get to glory, we still wrestle with this because we keep going back to the sin and we keep feeling the shame and it's this back and forth wrestling. But here's the beauty of this connection. When I saw this in Genesis 3-7, you know, I had one of those mind-blowing moments. The first time that mankind's eyes were opened, they realized they were naked, The final time our eyes will be opened, we will realize that we are clothed. We will realize that there's no more shame. We will finally know what it fully means for the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus to be sufficient to cover us, to cover our sin, to cover our shame. You see, we will finally see and we will have no more shame. And I want you to think about the freedom that that's going to be like. I want you to think about how you're going to be a whole new person in that sense, just from that. We haven't even started talking about the new bodies that we're going to get and the wonderful work that God's going to call us to. Going back to Genesis 1, when he says, I've called you to rule over this creation. That's what we're going to be doing on the new earth. So Jesus tells Peter, listen, if you can get past your shame, you'll be free to pastor the church that I've called you to pastor. Feed my sheep, feed my lamb. Men and women, if you can get past your shame, you'll be free to be about the work that God has called you to do. At the table to come, it will all be right. It will all be permanent. It will all be full. You will have eyes to see and you will have no more shame. Now, with those two incredible truths in mind, I want us to now get to John 21, and, and we're going to end the message with this, and then we're going to celebrate the table together. I want you now to imagine, with maybe clearer eyes than you did 30 minutes ago, what it will be like to eat at the table with Jesus. If you can do that, you will be able to read Revelation 19 with a whole new meaning with new imagination, with new understanding, you'll have even greater joy of anticipation of the banquet to come. So in a moment, I'm going to reread these verses for us, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. And I want us to celebrate it with joy. Lloyd reminded us of this last week. He said, listen, we've gotten in the tradition, not just us, but churches today, of making the Lord's Supper a somber moment. And, and I get that. Like, you know, this is the body of Christ, the blood of Jesus. I, I, I get that. But in the New Testament, it was always celebratory. It was always a feast. It was always joyful in the pattern of all these other celebratory feasts where they were eating the sacrifice. You, you see what I mean? 
And so we, we've sort of made this, this Lord's Supper more of an altar than a table. And Lloyd did a great job last week of saying, listen, the altar is the cross. That's the place. You know, Good Friday is the place for, for tears and, and, and heaviness. The table points us to resurrection, points us to Easter Sunday. The table is the provision of God. The table is the presence of God. So we engage it joyfully. And this is how I'm going to encourage us this morning to engage this. Now, when we receive the Lord's table, the Lord's supper as a body, we embody what we believe. We live out tangibly what we believe. You will actually taste something today. You will get a chance in your physical senses to make your faith real as you anticipate the meal to come. This table this morning has been brought out to you in culmination of this part of the story where we will all be invited to gather around a feast, a table. And so we're going to do that this morning together. It's open for all who believe, all who have put your trust in Jesus. If you're part of our church or not, if you've put your trust in Jesus, this table is open to you this morning. And I want to say this for those of you who don't yet believe or you're not sure that you believe, the invitation this morning is to put your faith in God's provision for you so that you can be in his presence. And both of those things happen through faith in Jesus Christ. He is your provision. He is what you need. And he will usher you into the presence of God so that the relationship with God can be restored and you can be back around a table with God. And some of you in this room don't even know what that is like. And I want to invite you to faith this morning. And if you believe, maybe for the first time, then you just come to the table with us. Be a part of this. If you don't yet believe, then, then, then don't. It, 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 you wouldn't have integrity inside of you if you did. But, but there's no, there's no uh, you're not going to be a bad person for not doing that. But oh, would one or two or three or a dozen of you come to faith this morning for the first time and put your trust in Jesus? That would be a joyful day for you. Here are some instructions for the table that we're going to celebrate together in this moment. I want to encourage you to go together. In other words, if you've come here with a family, or you've come here with someone or a friend, go with them to the table. But if you have not come here with anyone, go to the table and you will find people there. You will find community. You will find communion around one of these tables this morning. The table is going to open as soon as I read this passage in Revelation. You're welcome to go right away or you're welcome to linger a little bit. There'll be some music going on. You can sit, you can stand, you can engage the table at your own pace this morning. But when you go, you don't go alone. And let me say this. When you get there, take the bread, take the cup, look around the table, see who else is there. You may or may not know them. Make eye contact, say hello, greet them, interact for at least a few seconds and then there around the table, you'll go ahead and eat the bread and drink the cup, and then you can go back to your seat. Let me ask you, if I can, to stand as I read Revelation 19, 6 to 9, and then we will celebrate the Lord's table together in anticipation of the table to come. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Amen.